0: To treat yourself, a book club podcast where we usually read a book and then come together to discuss it. I'm Hannah. I'm Christina. And now, it reintroducing our longtime
1: reoccurring guest, Emma. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: Hi.
1: Hey, Emma. <laughs> what a grand introduction I did.
2: We're sorry off strong, guys. You know, it's good to start off with a laugh with The subject matter that we're about to get into. Yeah, Yeah. that's what
0: I was going to say. This episode is going to be slightly different than usual. Uh, It is still slightly related to books. So, Emma, would you like to explain the topic of today's discussion?
2: Well, we are talking about the Twilight Zone movie accident. That's basically all I'm going to say about it right now, uh, because we're going to go into lots of details about it and so Hannah did mention it's book related there are currently two books written about it one called Outrageous Conduct by Stephen Farber and Mark Green and the other one is Special Effects by Ron Lebreck there's a new book supposed to come out about it sometime in the future I don't know about this book because one it has the longest description of a book I've ever seen (laughs) (laughs) And it also uses the phrase never before told story a lot. And I'm Mm. just holding these other two books right here. Just hey. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know how you can say that. But anyway, uh, I believe that book is called Fly By Night by Stephen Chain. Anyway, I'll still be reading it probably once it does come out. Mm. But we we will not be discussing it today in our discussion of the accident but those are my two main sources of information for breaking down what happened mm-hmm.
0: great uh just going forward there are going to be some content warnings for this discussion and this episode definitely content warnings around death specifically uh, the endangerment and death of children gore specifically decapitation so just be wary don't ruin the fun <laughs> <laughs> just be wary of the fun of this real event that occurred many years ago that people possibly know about already yeah.
2: alright Well, let's, let's, let's say some more disclaimers here one, I will give you plenty of warning when we get to the actual accident because there's a lot to talk about before Yes. and there's even more to talk about after so when it actually happens I will say alright It's happening. Mm -hmm. And then number two, I'm just going to apologize for all my nervous laughter. Oh, yes. Oh, same. (laughs) Because if you listen to our last episode where I'm saying that this is the topic that we're going to do this time. Well, when I was editing that episode, I was thinking, man, I really wish I had controlled my giggling while saying that we (laughs) were going to be doing this topic. Because it's not something to laugh about. It's a very very sad thing but it's hard not to think about certain things that happen in the story which are actually ridiculous Mm -hmm. and where all you can do is laugh because it's Mm -hmm. just just unbelievable some of the things that will occur but then yes just in general nervous laughter i don't mean i don't mean it guys I do I'm I am very upset about this.
0: No, I do the same thing. I I definitely notice in episodes that whenever we get to more difficult topics I do have a tendency to have nervous giggles going on. So I apologize in advance for that as well. So obviously we're the three most qualified
2: people to be talking about though.
0: Yeah, well, I was Mm going to say, let's go a little bit into our background with this and how we came upon this information. I don't know if you want me to go first, or if you want to share your story of how you got into it. I'll go
2: first, because mine goes much farther back than Hannah's. Although, (sighs) so I first heard about it, I actually heard about it because of a... YouTube channel that Hannah introduced me to Mm. called Pretty Much It where they just casually mentioned it once. They're just like, oh man, have you heard about this? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so I was like, oh, this is right up my alley. Let's do a quick search. And (laughs) so I found out about it. And so I find out that Vic Morrow and two kids were killed during the filming of the Twilight Zone movie that was filmed by John Landis. And so I had the name John Landis and Vic Morrow just always just in the back of my mind for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And there would be plenty of times where I would watch something and then in the end credits see Vic Morrow's name and be like, oh hey he was the guy who was killed in the Twilight Zone movie accident. I wish I'd paid attention to this show so I knew which guy it actually was. I had no image of this guy in my head. Right. Mm-hmm. But uh, I guess, Hannah, do you want to <laughs> now take up the story?
0: Yeah, so Emma... Really enjoyed this show called Combat, a World War Two show that starred Vic Morrow and yes. was fantastic. She, like chose certain episodes to have me watch. I think there were a lot more tears than she anticipated while I was watching this show. It got me very emotional in (laughs) many, many episodes, but it's really fantastic, and I would recommend watching it if you have the chance. And so, as I do, I was looking up the actors, and just trying to see, like, oh, what happened? What else were they in? And, you know, when you're looking up Vic Morrow, then you see his death and and how that happened. So then I'm texting Emma all of this. And, of course, she already knows all of this, <laughs> so it's not a surprise to her. And so that's how I, I then came across. It. And then she got her hands on the books about it, and I did yeah. end up reading the special effects one, I believe. yes. Uh, mm. So I did. I did read one of the books about it, but that was like a year and a half, two years ago now. It was three years ago. Three years ago, well. that I read it. So that is mine, <laughs> Christina. How did you come across this topic?
1: <laughs> because of you guys, <laughs> I have no experience with this topic besides just like a quick cursory. I watched like one YouTube video about it. Okay a really short YouTube video about it because I wanted to come here pretty blind and Mm -hmm. I wanted to learn from you guys and react. Mm. Yeah. So I'm ready to learn.
2: Yeah. So yeah, I think Hannah and I are coming at this from the point of view as fans of Vic Morrow. We're going to talk about him after (laughs) this is all said and done. (laughs) Yeah. I guess we can get into it. Yeah. <laughs> and Christina, if you have any questions, please jump in. Because I'm sure this is... Okay, this is this is a long story. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people. Oh, yeah. All right. Let's try to begin. To some degree. <laughs> okay. Before the movie. This story starts in January of 1982. Where a man named Terry Semmel becomes the president of Warner Brothers. And he wants to bring in the top directors, to direct movies for Warner Brothers. So he brings in Steven Spielberg, who had just directed Raiders of the Lost Ark. So he's courting Steven Spielberg, saying, here's all these various things we have the rights to. And he mentions The Twilight Zone, and Steven Spielberg was really excited about that, because the first thing he ever directed was an episode of Night Gallery, Mm. which was Rod Serling's other show that is not as good as The Twilight Zone. (laughs) But... (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, he was really excited about that. And so Steven Spielberg was friends with John Landis, who also at this time, successful director, had directed Animal House and The Blues Brothers. Mm. And so they were friends, and they had sort of talked about maybe working together. And so Steven Spielberg mentions, hey, I'm going to be doing a Twilight Zone movie. And John Landis is like, oh, man, I really want to get on with this. I'm a big fan of the show. And I also want to direct something more serious, because I'm only being offered comedies right now, and I want to I do something that has meaning to it. <laughs> so, all right. So Landis and Spielberg, they are now co-producers and equal partners on this movie, and they decide that the movie is going to be a collection of four short stories, each with a different director. So Spielberg and Landis directing individual segments, and then they're also going to have Joe Dante and George Miller directing segments. They're not part of the story. You don't need to know that. We don't need to remember those names. (laughs) But you do need to remember that the executive producer of all four segments is a man named Frank Marshall. Okay. Okay. Who is a frequent Spielberg executive producer. Yeah. Frank Marshall and his, at the time, girlfriend, Kathleen Kennedy. Yes. Were the producers of Steven Spielberg's movies. They are Amblin Entertainment, those three. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Frank... Frank Marshall. Frank Marshall. We'll, we'll get to him later. Kathleen <laughs> Kennedy, who is now head of Lucasfilm. Yeah. She's she's not part of the story, but just, like, just remember, she's part of the story.
0: Yeah. Tangentially connected.
2: She's there in the background. <laughs> yeah. Somewhere. <laughs> All right. So John Landis wants to write his own script for his own segment. He gets to work on it. He finishes the first draft in April of 1982. And he decides that his story is going to be about a bigot named Bill, who then becomes a victim of various horrible things throughout history, like being pursued by SS troops in Nazi-occupied France, and being a victim of the KKK in the American South, and then being in South Vietnam, where he's attacked by American GIs. That's... What a story. It it does not sound like a good story. It's a story, Hannah, and it was written, and it was submitted to the Warner Brothers Studio Executives for their approval, and so the vice president in charge of production, Lucy Fisher, uh, decided that she wanted to have a meeting with John Landis, and she was concerned that, you know, the racist bigot character was a little too unlikable, and that audience wouldn't really want to watch the segment, (laughs) you know. And, and Landis said, they were concerned that I painted Bill so harshly, his character was so ugly, they said he is so unsympathetic, why watch the episode, what are you trying to prove? We discussed, is there a way of literally re- having Bill redeemed, if he could not just learn an object from his experience, but act upon it, and it was out of that meeting that we came up with the idea of an additional scene to try to soften Bill's character. <laughs> I just made a face, but nobody saw it.
0: because <laughs> I didn't remember this aspect and it's just one of those things like you start to see the dominoes like if you know the story you start to see the dominoes and how each little decision has a consequence and it just rolls into the disaster Uh, okay that's
2: why that's why it may seem strange that I'm starting so far back in the story but you have to understand that this is how John Landis then wrote an additional part to the Vietnam scene where Bill would come across two children and then he would rescue them from a helicopter that was shooting at them. All right. Warner Brothers approves of these changes. Let's do. Let's go make a movie.
1: And there is no other way to make this character seem redeemable. No other way to rewrite this story at all.
2: I mean, uh, why would you? Just I- add
1: some children in it. It'll be fine.
2: A big
0: cinematic yeah. moment with a helicopter. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes. Yeah. So... Now, it's June of 1982, and they're casting the segment. And so the casting directors are Mike Fenton and Marcy Leroff. And so they have this meeting with John Landis, and he describes the scene and says, we need two children for a scene where they're going to be chased by a helicopter and there are going to be explosions. And it's at night. So lots of things that Marcy Leroff then brings up to John Landis. You can't have children working at night, late at night. And she also says that the scene sounded kind of dangerous. So <laughs> <laughs> the California Labor Commission child labor laws at that time were that you couldn't have a child working for more than four hours a day or later than 6.30 p.m. So this wouldn't really solve the problem, but the scene really didn't need to take place at night. I mm. mean... <laughs> no, yeah. I, I suppose explosions look better at night, but you could have just had it... During the day, I know that somebody along the line mentions day for night. And yeah. And they shoot that down. There's lots of ideas that are not having children working at night that are shot down. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the child child labor laws, and you also have to have a licensed teacher welfare worker on the set to see to this child's safety, there aren't really explicit rules too much of like exactly what a child can and can't be around, but that's what the teacher welfare worker is there for, mm-hmm. to be like... No, you can't have this child near an explosion. Yeah. Under a helicopter. Perhaps. Right.
1: Maybe. I don't know. Seems like a gray area to me.
2: Well <laughs> anyway, Marcy Leeroff said that John Landis' response to her explanation was the hell with you guys, we'll get them off the street ourselves.
0: Huh. I so.
2: hate this man. <laughs> I'm, We're
0: not even into anything. I don't yet, care, we? I'm putting it out there now. I hate this man.
2: Well, anyway, casting director Marcy Leroff calls Frank Marshall, the executive producer, and tells him about the meeting and says, Don't don't have children working at night, please.
0: Mm-hmm. And Frank
2: Marshall said, We'll take care of it. And no, not really. Yeah. Frank Marshall has an aide, possibly Kathleen Kennedy, <laughs> allegedly. Has somebody call the Labor Commission, to see if there were waivers for children working at night. And no, there weren't. All right, Mm. end of that. We can't do this legally. So now the job of finding and eventually illegally hiring children fell to associate producer of the film, George Fulsey Jr., who is an important person in the story. Uh, And so during a meeting uh, with George Fulsey Jr., John Landis, and then the production manager... Dan Allingham, Cynthia Nye, I know I just named a lot of people there, I'm sorry. <laughs> Cynthia, Cynthia Nye, who's the secretary, overhears three people who are involved in this movie say, we'll probably all be thrown in jail for this.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: Foreshadowing. You should
0: have been. <laughs> Hannah. Sorry.
2: <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we'll get back to the illegal hiring of the children. Later. Right now. <laughs> We're moving on to Dan Allingham, who I just mentioned was in that meeting. He's the unit production manager. So he's right under Fulci, who's associate producer. These are the main people working on this film. And he was tasked with hiring the special effects team and the helicopter pilot. So he hires Paul Stewart, who is a 20-year industry veteran. He was going to be the head of the special effects. And then when he's looking for a pilot for the scene and he's describing it to people uh there's one pilot named john gamble who said who didn't like the sound of the scene and said you can get the same effect doing it another way because a camera doesn't have a depth of field plus the most dangerous position for a helicopter to be is in a hover there is only one to- way to go straight down so hmm. and obviously john G- gamble did not get the job instead it was a man named dorsey wingo who had never worked in a movie before oh i forgot about this detail he was employed by a company called Western Helicopters, uh, who did work with movies. But he is a Vietnam veteran. He was flying helicopters at the time. He is very experienced, and because he is a Vietnam veteran, he was used to the specific helicopter that was going to be used in this scene, which is the UH-1B helicopter, the Huey, mm-hmm. or as I'm going to call it, the helicopter. So we finally get to the movies. Going to be going to start filming. Eventually. And the script supervisor, Catherine Wooten, overhears a crew member say, Gee, too bad we didn't have a production meeting because then we'd know how to coordinate certain things. Oh my gosh. Which.
0: What? Uh, what? I feel like re listening to this story, and I think you mentioned this before, but it, it does feel like there are many parallels to the recent accidents on set. The Rust shooting? Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes. But just remember that this story took 5 years. So, if you're looking for answers with that story yeah. with any it's going to be a while. Yeah. So anyway, that's just that quotation is to showcase that the production was hectic from the start. But anyway, we're going to talk about Vic Morrow a bit now. All right. So Vic Morrow gets hired to play the lead character, Bill, in this segment. So he was a moderately successful actor in the 50s and 60s. He tried to become a director in the late 60s. It unfortunately did not work out. And his acting career just did not go well after that. And he was at a very low point in his career. And so in July, he gets the part and he calls his friend Steve Shagan. It's a call from Vic Morrow, and Morrow tells him, I'm doing a feature. I've got a whole segment to myself. It's Spielberg, man. And my segment, this guy Landis is directing. The guy's bananas, but it's a shot for me, a big shot. This may be it for me, Steve. Warner's promised me three films after this. Oh. And, and Steve wow. tells him, do the job and go home. They're all crazy. You know that. So... Oh. <laughs> and <is> hurting. <laughs> <laughs> uh. But it's important to know that, as you just heard, first of all, being in a Spielberg picture at this point is a huge deal. Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And especially for somebody who has just not been doing anything of note.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. How old is he at this point? Well, that's a good question, Christina. Because the one book claims that his birth year is 1931, and the other book claims his birth year is 1929. So, anyway, he is between fifty one and fifty three okay, <laughs> so he's not he's not a young man,
0: but mm-hmm.
2: he's not over the hill. I don't know
1: yeah, right he like how long had it been since his last movie or television show? Had it been a while
2: so he had been doing things, but he had he hadn't been doing any starring roles, okay, gotcha, okay, all right, so he's in this movie. He knows this is a big shot for him and that he doesn't want to blow it. The movie filming is going along, and then we get to the banana plant scene, which we've talked about before, Hannah. Yes, okay. So this isn't even anything to do with the Twilight Zone movie accident, but there is a scene where there are supposed to be bullets shot towards Morrow, and he's standing near banana plants, and the banana plants around him get shredded, but he doesn't get... Hit or he might get hit. I don't know, I didn't see the movie. Anyway, the banana plant scene the initial plan doesn't work out to John Landis's liking for good reason because they had an air powered gun to shoot marbles and the marbles just bounced off the banana plants. Mm-hmm. So Paul Stewart says, Well, we could attach squibs to the leaves. John Landis says, No, that'll take too long. And so then Paul Stewart, the special effects expert, says, Well, I have a shotgun and live ammunition, let's just shoot the plants. Oh my gosh! Wait, okay. Oh gosh! Wow. <laughs> Christina retreats into her cocoon. <laughs> anyway, Morrow, this is when he's he puts his foot down and says, "I'm not going to be around live ammunition." So, all right, we'll good film. for him. <laughs>
0: yeah, he shouldn't have had to speak up in the first place to protect for himself.
2: For real. For real. <laughs> uh, okay, so. Now we're just going to do the scene. Morrow's in front of the plants pretending he's being shot at. And then we're going to shoot it where the plants are being shot. But nobody's in the scene. We'll splice the two together. and scene. So now we're going to go back to the hiring of the children. Mm-hmm. So it's confirmed they can't get a waiver. So it's up to George Fulsey to find these children. Yeah. So yeah, Fulsey says that Marshall, Frank Marshall... Agree to the hiring of the children. And Fulci got to find some children. He goes to his production secretary, Donna Schumann, who's going to be important <laughs> in the trial. They have been friends for a long time. And Donna Schumann's husband, Harold, was a psychiatrist who had connections to the Asian community, I think is how the book puts it. Okay. <laughs> Vague
0: yeah. descriptions
2: of things. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he calls... A former associate named Peter Chen, who is a social worker, and basically just asks, like, hey, do you know about any Asian children who want to be in this movie? (laughs) And Peter Chen's like, yeah, I have a niece named Renee, who is six years old. Oh,
0: I forgot it was, like, his niece, and it was, like, a connection in that way, too. Oh, gosh.
2: Yes. Peter Chen then also calls another associate, Dr. Daniel Lee, who has a seven-year-old son named Micah. All right, so we have two children, six and seven years old. <sighs> it's awful. Uh, so Peter Chan is told by Falsy that the parents would have to accompany the children and that it would be between the hours of 7 p.m. and 1 a.m. So on July 16th, the driver picks up the families and they all go to the set and they watch the movie being made. And then John Landis meets the children. And he's like, yeah, these are the kids. Like, I like <laughs> it a lot. And, and so they're already taking steps to hide the hiring of the children mm-hmm. because, well, for example, Dan Allingham, who is the unit production manager that I mentioned before, he tells the second assistant director, Anderson House, don't list the kids on the call sheets or the production reports. Ugh. But Red flag, red flag. <laughs> so Cynthia Nye, who I mentioned before, the production assistant, mm-hmm. who overhears a lot of incriminating statements. yes. She overhears uh, George Fulsey telling John Landis, we'll probably be thrown in jail after this just because of the kids. And also she overhears Fulsey She thinks he's talking to the parents and tells them it's going to be like watching fireworks. That, and also saying that the helicopters and the explosions won't hurt the kids. They're, it won't be dangerous. And so then Dan Allingham and George Fulsey obtain the cash to pay for the kids they send a request to Warner Brothers for $2,000, and Frank Marshall co-signs the check. <laughs> That's the well, only reason why I'm mentioning well. this, because I like to mention Frank Marshall and his involvement we in this gotta case. got <laughs> to keep mentioning him. Don't let anybody forget. So, July 21st is the first night that the children are going to be on set mm-hmm. and filming the movie. And so all the parents accompany their children. Fulci picks them up. He pays them in cash. There was no helicopter or special effects explosions around the children during that filming.
0: Is this the night where they were hiding from the fire marshal?
2: We'll get to that. Okay.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's not funny, but it's it's funny. it's
2: it's not, but it's also <laughs> nervous laughter. <laughs> also on July twenty first, Dorsey Wingo arrives to fly the helicopter because mm-hmm. there are scenes with the helicopter that day, just not with the children and the helicopter. And so uh, he does fly over the set, but he doesn't walk through the village set at any time during that day. No. So, okay, yeah, Dorsey Wingo doesn't really go through the village or anything, but he does—he did talk with Paul Stewart, the special effects man, over the phone about what the final scene was going to be like in general. And Dorsey Wingo told him, whatever you're doing, just make sure that none of this stuff blows up to my rotors. All right. Seems reasonable. <laughs> Next day is July 22nd and the morning of July 22nd Vic Morrow calls his lawyer Al Green and he's complaining about just the whole filming of the movie Mm -hmm. he's complaining about drinking and drug use but he doesn't say anything specific so Mm. there's not really anything more that we can say about that like other people drinking and doing drugs yes he's he's vaguely saying that crew members are drinking and using drugs because it's the 80s. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: But, okay, okay. So his lawyer tells him, Vic, I've got no problem. I can pull you off right now. It won't be a violation of your contract. It will take me 30 seconds to take care of this with a telephone call. And Vic Morrow tells him, leave it alone. Because he knew he can't quit a movie. This would really hurt yeah. his career. Mm-hmm. And it's one day. Let's just get it over with. Right. So Hannah, on, on the last day... Mm-hmm. There are fire safety officials for the explosions, and there's a man named Jack Tice, who, at least one of the books says that Jack Tice moonlights as a teacher welfare worker. Oh, gosh. So so now everyone's concerned, hey, if this guy sees the children, he will step in and shut down Mm. the production. Yeah. Well, as you all may know, he doesn't do that, so... We don't really need to mention him anymore, but... Anyway, because everyone knows that this man is out and about, George Folsey tells the parents. Now, there's only one parent for each child who comes to the last scene because they were really tired from the previous night. Mm-hmm. And so there, there's Dr. Lee and Mrs. Chen... And so George Folsey tells them, if the firemen approach you, please tell them that you are not working for us. Say you are my friend. (laughs) Uh, Wow. Okay, so the first scene on July 22nd is Vic Morrow's gonna pick up the children and run with them, and there are gonna be mortars fired, and the helicopter's a good distance away. Mm -hmm. And yeah, Mrs. Chen was a little concerned about that. She asked, is this dangerous? And they were like, oh no, it's fine. But the scene occurs. All right, we're taking a break. The next scene, we don't need the kids. They can go off and rest. Mm-hmm. So now there's the 1130 scene, which involves the helicopter and explosions. And so no children. So there's water blasts uh, right under the helicopter. Dorsey Wing goes flying the helicopter because water blasts right under him. Now he can't see. It's covered the windshield. An explosion goes off that's so close to him, he slightly burns one of his cheeks when wow. he leans out of the helicopter. And he says, They didn't tell me about this in the when he's flying the helicopter. He says that to Dan Allingham, who is in the helicopter with him. And so the scene ends. Dorsey Wing goes upset. And so Dan Allingham in the situation. He is the liaison between the pilot, since he's in the helicopter. And John Landis. And so he tells Dorsey Wingo, hey, I'll, I'll talk to John Landis about this. I'll take care of it. Mm-hmm.
0: But I mean, they never thoroughly tell the pilot, like, do a full run through of everything exactly how it's going to be, do they? No, not. Not as thoroughly as it should have been done.
2: Yes, allegedly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So Dorsey Wingo doesn't know whether or not. Dan Alham talked to John Landis, but after the 1130 shot at some time, Dorsey Wingo's in the camera crew area. John Landis is there. John Landis asks him, hey, what did you think of the 1130 shot? And Wingo said that, you know, it's it's fine as long as the, the next explosions aren't that near the helicopter. And John Landis replies, you ain't seen nothing yet. Uh,
1: okay, but can you... But that doesn't answer my question. (laughs) Yeah. Makes it sound like it's going to be closer to the helicopter, and that's not good.
2: (laughs) Well, to which Dorsey Wingo responds, how would you like a fireball under you? And John Landis Uh, says, don't be squeamish.
1: Oh my god. (laughs) This guy is crazy.
2: So, Paul Stewart, the special effects expert, is setting up the explosions for the last scene. He's setting up the mortars, and he's talking to John Landis, and John Landis... Wants a mortar under a structure that's known as the four-legged structure, or the food-drying shack, or hut number four, or several <laughs> names. We're going to call it the food-drying shack. They knew that Dorsey Wingo told them, hey, don't make there be any debris in the air. So Paul's George didn't really want to put anything under a shack, but he thought, hey, if I put it under the shack, but tilt it towards the cliff... It won't explode the shack. It'll just set it on fire. Perhaps. I don't know. I'm
0: not a special effects expert, but that does seem a bit <laughs> sketchy. <laughs> oh my gosh! Like there could, shouldn't there be a different way to set something on fire than just a mortar? Isn't there a different method?
2: Hannah, I don't know.
0: Or was he just trying to do that so it was like behind Landis's back? Like, yeah, I set the mortar, and his plan was just for it
2: to be on fire and well, not. No, I think he, he discussed with Landis, like, okay, we're not gonna blow it up, but we're okay. gonna have it here. Hey, look, we did it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Paul Stewart goes through the village with Dorsey Wenko at 1.30 in the morning, and for some reason he tells him that they were considering putting a mortar under the food drying shack, even though it was already under the food drying shack. And Dorsey Wenko says, please don't do that. I told you, don't No debris, please. Oh my gosh. (laughs) That is such a thing that
0: people do, though. Like, they've already done something, and then it's like, I was thinking about this, trying to see, like, what their reaction is. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. And also, Dorsey Wingo never talks to a man named James Camomile, who is the one who's going to be manning the firing board for the mortars Mm -hmm. that are going to go off in the last scene. Dorsey Wingo Mm. thought Paul Stewart was going to do it, because he's a special effects... Expert head person. hmm Wow. All right. Uh, it's 2 a.m. They do a rehearsal flight to just determine the height of the helicopter in this scene. It's at 35 feet above the ground. James Camille, who's going to be in charge of the firing board, the plan that he was told is that on cue, he's going to fire six mortars at one second intervals. And he was under the assumption that the helicopter would not move until everything was fired And he wasn't watching the helicopter. He was going to focus on Vic Morrow and the children, because he was afraid one of the children would run away, like, get scared and run away. Yeah, get
0: spooked and Mm. and run off. Also, those children, I mean, they've already been there past the amount of time. I mean, everything that they did with the children is illegal, but they've been there far longer than the amount of time that they're supposed to be.
2: Yes. Wow. Everything just kept... They were only supposed to be there for one day, but then it got pushed back to another day, and Mm -hmm. now it's... 2 a.m. and it's mm-hmm. all right. We're here. We're at the last scene. Yeah. So before the scene begins, Cynthia and I, our production assistant, who's overhearing all these statements. Yeah. She hears John Landis tell everyone to stand up and that be ready to move in case anything goes wrong. The scene begins. Landis orders the helicopter to move lower. He wants he now gets it to be 20 to 24 feet above the ground. It's not 35 feet like in the rehearsal. Mm-hmm. All right. Scene begins. The first three mortars are fired one second apart. Dorsey Wingo is, knows about those. He prepared, he's prepared for those. He's staying in a hover. And then Dan Allingham in the helicopter with him orders him to start turning. So now it's been three seconds since the last mortar was fired before the fourth mortar is fired, which is the food drying shack mortar. And then one tenth of a second later, the fifth mortar is fired. But the gas from that one doesn't ignite, but instead combines with the fourth one, which causes a very large explosion, which engulfs the helicopter's tail. Wow. At this point, the helicopter begins to spin out of control. So Dorsey Wingo loses anti-torque control. He's trying to use the foot pedal that controls the tail rotor blade, but it's not responding. So the helicopter is spinning and it eventually hits the ground. And the main rotor blade decapitates Vic Morrow and Maika Lee, and the aircraft crushes Renee Chen. Because,
0: <sighs> yeah, Vic Morrow, again, he was, he was standing under this hovering helicopter with these two children. Well, he's running. He's, he's, like, trying to get away, though, and I think, is this something that you're going to talk about later? But a detail that I feel like I remember is, it makes me so sad, is that there's, like, a hole that he steps in.
2: Yes. All right. It is. And we are going to go back a little bit because that is important to mention, Hannah. So the scene is Vic Mara running away from the helicopter with holding the two children. And so while he's running, he trips. And also, one of the strange things is one of the books says that Rene sort of slips from his grip, but that yeah. he is able to grab onto her. But then other sources say that he just completely drops her, which is yeah a very strange discrepancy. The mm-hmm. The slip information comes from the book Special Effects, and I know that the author of that book did view the footage with the jurors when we get to that part. Oh gosh. So I would think he would know, but I also am pretty sure that he says that the footage is pretty hard to see because the helicopters just What's it called? The rotors. The rotors are making so much water come up that it's really hard to see anything. Right. So yeah, that's that's a detail to acknowledge. It makes me so upset. I don't know why that detail is the
0: one that gets me. I don't, I don't know. I guess it's one of those things where it's just like that one thing that could have been different. Like, what if he hadn't tripped? What if? Uh... And you can't go down that road with this type of thing because, as as I mentioned at the beginning, like. You can see from the very beginning how this snowballs, how that decision to add this extra scene, like if Mm -hmm. they had just gone with Landis's original script without this scene, none of this would have happened. But you can't, I don't know, you can't really play that what if game.
2: But I don't know, the the tripping part always gets me. Right. So this whole scene that I just described, it's 10 seconds from action to crash. Mm -hmm. And so there were six people in the helicopter- and none of them were severely injured. They were all... Wow. Fine. And for the most part, I mean, they were all alive. All right. It's 2.45 a.m. when the first officer arrives on the scene. And Frank Marshall, who was there, had told everyone to go home. <laughs> oh. There were there were still people there, but it's a, it's a little weird to tell everyone to leave a crime scene. Anyway, Yeah. yeah. So Tom Butts who's going to be our main character, more or less, in this story. He is a detective for the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. And he received the call before 3 a.m. that uh, an accident had happened on a movie set and that three people Mm. were dead. And so he arrives at the site at 4 a.m. And he says, all right, I'm going to treat this as a criminal investigation Mm. instead of an industrial accident, which it might be because it's a helicopter crashing. So... right. Right. But there were only about a dozen people there when he had been told in the phone call that 150 people had witnessed the accident. (laughs) That's so ridiculous.
0: (laughs) So strange. I mean, they all know they've messed up. They all know that they have horrifically, horrendously messed up and they're all just trying to save their butts at this point.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, arrest Frank Marshall.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) We'll get to that, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. And -hmm. then according to the book Special Effects... Tom Buds trips in the place where Vic Morrow tripped. What? While oh. surveying the scene. No way. Which is such, it's such a small detail, and it's only mentioned in the one book, but just seems like something to mention here. And so he also finds cans of beer and vodka bottles, but it turns out that mm. these are in the guest area, so. But for okay. a long time, he's really trying to pursue... I'm getting a little ahead of the story here, but... For a long time, he's really trying to pursue the drugs and alcohol angle because then it'd be much easier to be like criminal negligence. People were drunk. But Mm -hmm. in the end, I can skip to the end. There's no definitive proof that drugs or alcohol played any role in this story. Right. Yeah. So Tom Buds is there. And then a man named Abden Urente gets there. And he is an investigator for the National Transportation Safety Board or the NTSB. As it will be now now be known going forward. And their purpose is to determine the cause of the helicopter crash. That's mm-hmm. their purpose in general. I think this might be getting ahead too, but when
0: I was reading the special effects book, I did feel bad for the pilot specifically. Yeah. I think I might be misremembering this, but was he one of the ones who like helped find the people, mm-hmm. like find the children,
2: find That's, Vic Morrow and no. help get them Okay, you're 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 incorrect, Hannah. I think who am I? I think I'm Paul thinking Stewart, of? who okay picked up one of the bodies
0: because I know there were descriptions of that, and that was just devastating to read. What yes. Mm-hmm. The, the people going in then and and trying to recover the bodies? Yes.
1: Yeah.
2: No, Dorsey Wingo. He gets out of the helicopter and he asks where 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 <sighs> are Vic and the kids?
0: Okay. Yeah. No. Okay. That that's that's another detail that destroy. I, I know I cried so many times reading this book, but that when he's just asking, "What like,
2: where are they? Did they get out? Like,
0: it's devastating.
2: Yeah. You also have to remember, as I said, that only one parent of each child was there and that these people now have to go home to their spouse and tell them yeah. what happened. So it's awful. That's really bad. Okay, so Tom Buds, he's getting his evidence, coroner, police photographer, everyone's there. He then allows Abden Urente to take the helicopter and debris and evidence so he can do his investigation. and he and Urente tells Buds, like, I'll share my information with you. We'll do this together, guys." Nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Tom Buds finds out that uh, the helicopter pilot wasn't severely injured. He did go to the hospital. Mm-hmm. He was,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know, shaken up, slightly injured. Oh, for sure. And and Tom Buds says, I want him here. I need to talk to somebody. There's nobody here. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, because
0: they send everybody home. Not the detectives, the <laughs> people trying to cover this up. The Frank Marshall. <laughs> yeah. Frank Marshall. So
2: Tom Buds gets a lot of good information from Dorsey Wingo. He gets uh, the information that Landis ordered the helicopter to go lower And he says, I knew there was going to be explosions. Of course, I knew nothing about the location of the explosions other than what had happened previously. All the blasts were close, close enough to concern me that it was a risky thing to film. I told Paul Stewart I was concerned about debris and finishes by saying it was only said we're going to blow the village. And indeed they did. And right out from under me. So
1: Well, I feel like he, like, made an honest effort to try and get them – like, he made his concerns known. Yeah. And they didn't heed his professional advice.
0: That's why I do have, I think, the most sympathy for him out of every single mm-hmm. person that is involved in this. Because, Yeah. yes, he could have easily done more. I – I mean, I don't know what he could have done aside from walking away from it when he realized how unsafe and how underprepared he was for it. Yeah. But I don't know. He's the one I have the most sympathy for.
2: Well, okay. So Tom Buds, he says, I at least have a child endangerment case at this point. Mm, For sure. Anything else, we'll find out in the future. Right now, it's a couple days later. And we're going to talk about Vic Morrow's funeral. Mm. I don't know if you remember this part, Hannah. but
0: I, I don't, but I bet it'll come back to me as you're talking about it.
2: Well, I gonna... feel like pieces are already coming back. We are going to turn to an article called In Harm's Way, Vic Morrow's Death on the Set of the Twilight Zone movie by Dick Peabody. Dick Peabody was Vic Morrow's co-star on Combat. He played Little John. Mm-hmm. And so he, he wrote an article for The Mountain Democrat about going to Vic Morrow's funeral. And here's what he has to say. The next day, Barbara Turner called. She was Vic's first wife and the mother of his two daughters, Carrie and Jennifer, actress Jennifer Jason Leigh. Even though divorced from Vic for 16 years, Barbara felt obliged to guide her children who were in their teens and arranging Vic's funeral. She asked me to be a pallbearer and to help the girls in any way I could. Carrie and Jennifer wanted Rick Jason, their other co-star from Combat, and myself to give the eulogies. I rode with them to the funeral and sat with them in the section of the chapel reserved for family. Moments after we arrived, an audible shock wave of reaction from Vicks, friends, and coworkers who came to pay their respects grabbed my attention. A thin, bearded man was coming down the aisle, seemingly unable to walk without assistance. He was supported by a woman and another man. Mrs. John Landis and George Folsey Jr., the production manager of the Twilight Zone movie. The bearded staggerer was Twilight Zone director John Landis. His stooges helped him to the lectern, and he began a rambling eulogy. Unplanned, unrequested, unwanted, and shocking to Vic's family and friends. His (sighs) mere presence at the funeral was offensive to them. He did this, presumably, on the advice of his attorney. The most... Oh my god. The most obnoxious remark he made, among many, was that he was proud to have directed Vic in what Vic himself considered the best performance of his career. Oh, good grief. Vic's girlfriend and his ex-wife, Barbara, both said Vic thought the movie was a piece of S, which is how it's written in the article. I'm not just censoring myself. (laughs) 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 And he was ashamed to be connected with it. John Landis' eulogy sounded more like a promo for the film. Wow. So that man, yeah, uh, John Landis also goes to the funerals of the children, and no. it's like just, just stay away, just yeah, just
0: that is not a space for you.
2: So it's upsetting.
0: Like the children shouldn't
1: have even been legally tied to you. Like don't go to their funerals.
0: I mean, I guess if it was from his lawyer, I guess that and that's makes... bad lawyer advice. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> I mean, I, I guess it's trying to show that... Look, he's here. He's sympathetic.
2: Yeah, it's it's unfortunate. All right. The first thing that's going to happen is that the parents are going to file wrongful death lawsuits. Mm. Of course. Which we're not going to really talk about the civil suits because they're not resolved until the criminal investigation is solved. But the one thing we're going to mention is the Warner Brothers' attorney's response to the Chen family lawsuit, where they said the risk, if any risk there was, was knowingly assumed by the decedent, Renee Shin-Yi Chen. From the child. From the six-year-old child. Knowingly (sighs) assumed the risk. If there was a risk. We're not admitting if there was. Wow. Ugh. So, I'm... (laughs) It's absurd. So... Moving on, sometime during all this, mm. uh, Frank Marshall leaves the country with yes! Steven Spielberg. <laughs> uh, they go to scout locations for Indiana Jones and the Temple of mm, Doom. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, all right, Detective Tom Buds is continuing his investigation, and from talking to the parents, he realizes he has a criminal investigation mm. on his hands. Because they were very firm in telling him that they were kept in the dark about everything that was going on. They didn't know that the children were working illegally and everything involved with that. And so also the NTSB is beginning interviewing witnesses. They interviewed 34 people who were on the set. And then Mm -hmm. Tom Buds eventually gets these transcripts of the interviews. And so the transcripts confirm also that he has a criminal investigation because there's discrepancies. Paul Stewart, the special effects man, the one who was in charge Mm -hmm. of the special effects, he told them that James Camomile was in charge of the explosions and that he told him, whatever you do, make sure you can see Vic Morrow visually with your eyes before you do anything. Make sure the helicopter is in a safe place. And then when Camomile is interviewed... And he was the one who was in charge of the firing board. He said that there were no instructions involving the helicopter, that he's just supposed to watch the actors. Oh, boy. <laughs> and and Paul Stewart also says that he was not informed about the problems with the 1130 scene, and that he did not show Dorsey Wingo where the mortars were set up. And, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, during John Landis' interview with the NTSB they asked him if he directed the helicopters to descend lower and he said I don't know. Oh my gosh like, it's a which means no. yes
0: <laughs> it definitely means yes
2: <laughs> so Buzz is building his case he's doing his investigative work uh, but before charges can be brought he's got to convince a district attorney so Now he meets Deputy District Attorney Gary Kesselman. Kesselman! (laughs) He's going to (laughs) be, Buds and Kesselman are going to be our main characters for a long time here. (laughs) So Buds brings his three binders of investigation Mm -hmm. to Gary Kesselman. And he's like, here is my case. Do I have a case? And at first Gary Kesselman's like, "Mm, no, it sounds like a civil case. Uh, I don't know. But I'll look into it. A civil case where there
1: was, like, negligence and, like, almost murder,
2: basically. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, he hasn't gone through the three whole binders of (laughs) content yet. He's like, hold on, that's binder three. (laughs) Uh, So we're in about March 1983 now, and Castleman eventually, he agrees, and he says, all right, we need to present this to the grand jury so that way they can issue the indictments and then we will actually be able to bring it to court. (laughs) All right, so this whole case has been hampered by people not wanting to be interviewed or to testify Mm -hmm. because it might hurt their jobs Mm -hmm. if they speak out against certain people and Mm -hmm. it might hurt themselves if they incriminate themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So Gary Kesselman... He needed the testimony of the special effects team in order to build his case. So they're going to all be granted immunity, except for Paul Stewart. So that includes James Camille is granted immunity. Wow. Was it a good choice? I don't know. I think Gary Kesselman said at one point, like, we can't charge everyone who was there. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is also around the time where Gary Kesselman interviews Donna Schumann who is the production secretary. Oh, the one who mm. is overhearing <laughs> everything? Well, that's also Cynthia Nye. Oh. But this, so there are two women, and they're very similar, but it's important to note the difference. Okay, okay. Donna Schumann's going to be very important, as I said before. <laughs> so Donna Schumann was really good friends with George Folsey before the accident. Mm-hmm. And so she says in her interview with Gary Kessman, hey... If you can get this information elsewhere, I'd rather not testify. But I will if you need me to. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so her I mean her testimony is pretty important because she's talking about the whole production of the movie and how chaotic it was. Right. But alright, it's it's May of 1983, and we're going to the grand jury. So it's gonna be six days of testimony from 36 witnesses, and also the jurors view the film. And Gary Kesselman decides, yes, Donna Schumann, I do need your testimony. So she tells about the illegal hiring and the chaotic production office. Well, it goes pretty well, I guess, because at the end, Kesselman argues that John Landis, George Folsey, Dan Allingham, Dorsey Wingo, and Paul Stewart should be indicted for involuntary manslaughter and the grand jury votes to issue the indictments. Wow! Hooray! Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yay! But what about Frank Marshall?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Where is he in all this? He's out of the country. He's out of the country.
2: <laughs> I mean, he he wasn't directly involved in the actual hiring. He just kind of knew about it. Yeah. I, yeah. I know I've been talking about Frank Marshall a lot, and I'm probably making him sound more important than he actually is. But I just really think it's important to... <laughs> Talk about what he did in this case. Yeah. yeah. All right. Just because the grand jury indictments are issued, we still then have to go to we have to go to a preliminary hearing mm. because according to the California Supreme Court decision, it's uh, persons indicted by grand juries can have a preliminary hearing in front of a judge with their defense attorneys because you can't have defense attorneys in the grand jury. So there was no cross examination. It was just here's all this evidence of bad stuff <laughs> right so he has the preliminary hearing now there's cross-examination Kesselman basically does the same thing but he gets tripped up a little bit during the uh talk about how the helicopter crashed hmm. because because <laughs> at this point the defense they present the delamination theory which is that the heat of the fire from the explosion loosened the adhesive on the metal that covered the blade, causing it to peel off, which then caused the helicopter to crash. I I don't know, but this is they're saying that this is how it happens instead of wow. the debris that has been alleged mm-hmm. to <sighs> cause it. Uh, and the argument is that there's no records of helicopters crashing from delamination. So we couldn't foresee that firing a fireball at a helicopter was a bad idea. Wow. I mean,
1: can you just repeat that sentence and listen to yourself? <laughs> firing a fireball at a helicopter was a bad idea? I mean, they probably
2: didn't say that. <laughs> but at the end of the day, Castleman and the judge agrees with him that to prove criminal negligence, you don't need to prove how the helicopter crashed. Okay. So no- so nobody has to prove exactly how the helicopter crashed. That's not crashed. necessary in this case. It's mm. not.
1: It's fair. The
2: defensive strategy was also to blame James Camille for the helicopter crash. All right, so there's the hearing, and then there's appeals, and there's everything. At the end of the day, the grand jury indictments stay, mm-hmm. and we're going to go to a jury trial. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. But before, before the jury trial, Gary Kesselman, our district attorney, mm-hmm. in November of 1984, the Los Angeles Police Commission and the U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Service raid a dance club called the Club El Gaucho. Oh God! <laughs> Gary Kesselman is a financial investor in the Club El Gaucho. <laughs> <laughs> Hostesses at the club are arrested because they are suspected of being in the country illegally. And one was observed in an act of lewd conduct with a patron. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh boy. So, Gary Kesselman, he's just a financial investor. He says he has nothing to do with day to day operations. And he's also convinced that John Landis's attorney, Harlan Braun, set up the raid, <laughs> which he didn't like. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I, I only have to say allegedly. I'm pretty sure he did not. I don't. I don't know if anyone set up Gary Kesselman. Oh gosh, Gary Kesselman thought he was
0: set up. He set up himself. I mean, one of my notes that I had written down was that I was on Kesselman's side for a really long time throughout the upcoming events until, like, one final, like, idiotic thing that he did. (laughs) We'll get there, I guess, but...
2: (laughs) like, Anyway, even though Gary Kesselman claims his innocence, he does go to the district attorney's office and says I will leave this case if you want me to. Mm. And they say no. We're behind you, Gary. We got you. God. Okay. That's November 1984. So much time has passed. We're not skipping to August of 1985. Okay. Wow. The trial is coming up. Is gonna come up soon. But this is when a judge suggests a plea bargain negotiation. Hmm. So, uh, John Landis, Dan Allingham, and George Folsey's attorneys meet with Gary Kesselman, and they say that those three would plead guilty to a felony conspiracy to hire the children legally if the district attorney did not argue for a sentence longer than one year. Hmm. And that also this proposed plea included that all charges would be dropped against Dorsey Wingo and Paul Stewart, since they had nothing to do with the hiring. hmm Which is actually really nice. Uh, yeah. A nice thing to do. <laughs> um, for them, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, I always, like, I feel like I definitely am sympathetic towards the pilot, Dorsey Wingo, for yeah. sure. definitely. Yeah.
2: Uh, so, Tom Buds doesn't even want to think about this, because he's been investigating this for three years. He has them. They're gonna go to trial. hmm <laughs> Gary Castleman is a little worried, you know. Acquittals can always happen. Right. It's always a possibility. And also, he wouldn't argue for a prison sentence longer than a year anyway, I think, is what he says. Uh, but anyway, Gary Castleman brings it to the district attorney Ira Reiner, and Reiner tells him, no, we can imp- we can prove involuntary manslaughter. This'll be fine. Don't accept the plea bargain. So... No plea bargain. But this might also set in motion the actual events that take Gary Kesselman off the case. Because (laughs) around this time, Gary Kesselman is taken off the case. (laughs) Now, why he was taken off the case is a mystery. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) There's several things that are proposed. Perhaps the district attorney's office thought oh, he's considering this plea bargain, his heart's not in the case anymore. Right. right. Perhaps it was Gilbert Garcetti becoming chief deputy uh, district attorney, and he didn't really like Gary Kesselman? Mm-hmm. Perhaps. Or perhaps they wanted a district attorney who could better handle the media, because they knew that there would be... <laughs> <laughs> what? What? Anna <laughs> made a really silly face because she just remembered
1: something that happens in the future. Oh my gosh.
0: I just, if that's the reason, better handling the media, that is not what happens with the
2: replacement. <laughs> well, you don't know. You don't know how bad Gary would have been. I guess. Uh-oh. I, hmm. Okay. oh But they know that there's, there's going to be a lot of media tension and they know that Hollywood attorneys are going to be good at handling the media. They don't want just the prosecutor standing there and not handling the media or saying anything at all. So... We say should be, apparently, but <laughs> not all are. Well, just don't know. <laughs> we do know. <laughs> so th- this is when Leah DiAgostino is assigned the case. Now... I don't want to be mean to Leah DiAugustino. Mm. She had never lost a case as a prosecutor. Mm. <laughs> and she was very passionate about her job. She loved being a prosecutor. Mm. And as I said, she was very good at it. But she's also suddenly being assigned to a case that's been worked on for the past three or so years. And now she has about a year to prepare for it or less. Well, Yeah. So it's not great for anyone involved. Mm-hmm. Nobody's happy. Yeah. Yeah. But Gary Kesselman's not the only man replaced. Harland Braun was John Landis' attorney for the past couple incidents. hmm And he kept promising acquittals and it hasn't happened yet. So John Landis thought, you know, maybe I should get someone else. Yeah. So he gets a man named James Neal, who is pretty legendary. He was a special prosecutor in the Department of Justice in the 1960s, who helped convict Jimmy Hoffa of jury tampering. Wow. And was also a prosecutor during Watergate trials. Mm. So pretty big guy. Wow. Super famous. Yeah. (laughs) Well, when he first, first meets John Landis... He does not like him and does not want to take the case. (laughs) Because he's probably like, wow, this guy is super guilty. (laughs) (laughs) No, It's mostly just like, oh, this guy's so arrogant. (laughs) Yeah. But through several more meetings, he agrees. Mm -hmm. And he brings along his law partner, James Sanders. Mm. Uh, But since... Harlan Braun is very familiar with the case. He will stay on in the trial as George Folsey's lawyer, <laughs> so we got a lot of lawyers. We got at least one lawyer for all five men. There's gonna be seven people in total on the defense, which, again, to give Leah Diagostino a little bit of credit, it's seven men versus one woman. Yeah. Wow. So it's an uphill battle. hmm But did she fight that battle correctly? We'll find out.
1: but back to frank marshall (laughs) oh yes what's he doing well
2: that's a good question christina (laughs) so for some reason harland Braun decides that he's gonna try to embarrass the district attorney's office (laughs) for not going after frank marshall so he's just like oh isn't it embarrassing that frank marshall has evaded you all these years (laughs) uh i don't know why he does that Mm -hmm. but he does and Tom Buzz is just like, oh, I'm gonna find him.
1: Oh my gosh.
2: And he finds out that Frank Marshall is in London. Alright. He then goes to London, and with the help of Interpol and Scotland Yard, he tracks down Frank Marshall wow. <laughs> to yes. his hotel. And he gets an international subpoena. Yes. But the subpoena has to be served by a representative ...of the American Embassy, and has to be served in person. Okay. <laughs> so we're in June of 1986. The trial is three months away. Wow. When an employee of the American Embassy goes to deliver the subpoena, they go to the hotel, they call up to Frank Marshall's room, where somebody says, Oh, he's busy right now, but he'll be free in a couple of hours. <laughs> <laughs> hours? Well... A couple of hours later he's gone. He's <laughs> he he flew to Paris.
1: I'm guessing that person who called up identified themselves. <laughs> yeah. Probably that's the legal thing to do. I'd wait till I was in person, but
2: yeah. <laughs> Anyway, if you ever wanted to know how to avoid an international subpoena, apparently it's super easy. You just (laughs) say you're busy, and then you leave the country. Wow. So, Tom Buds foiled again. (laughs) Poor guy. for For the last time, because that is actually the end of Frank Marshall in this story. I'll probably still talk about him because that's just what I do. But wait, so he just keeps evading, yeah, his subpoena,
1: and then what? They just give up eventually. They just give up eventually, and then say, "Hey, He's... forget about it." And then I, he just uh... goes on living his life.
2: Yeah, I I don't know how subpoenas work, but apparently, if you just avoid them long enough, fine, we give up the trial. I guess because the trial was over, they're like, "Oh, I guess we don't we don't need anymore." <sighs> Did you know it was that easy?
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> I didn't. Dang.
2: I hope we're all all learning something here today. Uh, wow. are <laughs> not things I should be teaching, but... Hey,
1: if you don't want to go to court, don't go to court.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the thing is that Tom Buds at least tried to make it clear that, hey, we don't want to prosecute him. We don't... Yeah. He's not... He's not going to be on trial. We just want to talk to him. Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, that's the end of that. So it's July of 1986. Leah D'Agostino, she's preparing her case. And she begins some conversations with Donna Schumann, who I mentioned before mm-hmm. <laughs> several times, and decides she is the perfect first witness for the trial. And so Donna Schumann... She writes a memo to Leah D'Agostino with some incriminating statements, and then two weeks later, she writes another memo with more statements. Mm. So her statements include uh, George Folsey responding to her question about the penalty for using children without permits, which he said, a slap on the wrist and a little fine, unless they find out about the explosives, and then they'll throw my butt in jail. Mm. (laughs) And then she asked uh, why Falsy made a point about telling everyone about the explosives that were going to be used. And he said, with all these explosives on set, you should advise everyone so that you're covered in case something were to go wrong. Mm. And then also the John Landis stating, we're all going to jail. We're all going to go to jail. So Donna Schumann had not given this information at the grand jury or the preliminary hearing. Wow. But... She now, she wrote it down in a memo, so that way now they can turn this over to the defense, because that's the rules of discovery. You can't just bring, (laughs) unfortunately, you can't just bring evidence on people. You can't just surprise, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But now, it's September of 1986, and the trial is actually beginning. It's four years after the accidents. Wow. We're beginning the trial. And Leah Diagostino gives her opening argument, she talks about, The children were hired illegally so that no one would learn about the inherent danger of there being a helicopter and explosions, and that if they knew about that, that would prevent the children from being used at all. Uh, She says that the 11.30 p.m. explosions should have alerted everyone to the danger of further scenes. Mm -hmm. She says that John Landis ordered Paul Stewart to put a mortar under a hut, which would create debris, and then she makes a mistake. Because she quotes Dorsey Wingo in one of his statements that he made to the NTSB, and she wasn't allowed to present that information. Hmm. And she's arguing, oh, I thought he said that to Tom Buds, so it is admissible. And then she asks for a recess to go to her office to check her files. Oh, and the God. judge the judge says, I think it is up to you to be prepared on the opening statement as to the origin of the statements. Uh. <laughs> we haven't even started yet. Yeah, amazing. Uh, but she argues that the scene could have been done without sacrificing any artistic reality, without sacrificing any human life. Yeah. I think it probably could have. All right. James Neal's opening argument. He says, The scene as planned and rehearsed was not reckless. That not one of these gentlemen intended to hurt anyone. Not one of these gentlemen is guilty of criminal negligence. And then also continuing to blame James Camille for not looking at where the helicopter was while firing the mortars. Wow. Mm-hmm. All right. First witness for the prosecution, Donna Schumann, the production secretary. She describes the chaos of the production. She talks about George Fulsey and his phone calls to the parents, which were fairly misleading and didn't mm. give them all the information. Uh, she says the quotations, which I said previously, that were in the memos. And the por- importance of these quotations was that they directly linked the children and the explosions together. Okay. Because the quotations that I talked about previously from Cynthia and I we're mostly just, oh, we're going to get in trouble for hiring children illegally. Not, right. we're going to get in trouble for hiring children illegally and then putting them next to an explosion. Well, now we get to the cross-examination where Donna Shuvan is asked why she hadn't given these statements before during the preliminary hearing or the grand jury. And she answers, I wasn't asked the question by any of the attorneys. Hmm. All right. But then follow-up question, why was there several weeks... ...delay between one memo to the other. Yeah. And she says that she had already given the information to Gary Kesselman four years ago during his investigation, which would mean that Gary Kesselman withheld evidence from the defense. Wow. Oh, boy. (laughs) Yeah, uh, so Kesselman finds out that night that his career is being ruined as... On the first day of the trial, it's not the first day of the trial, but the first day of witnesses being called. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Kesselman and Diagostino are talking now and Kesselman asks Diagostino to check my notes. I gave you all my notes. Check my notes of the Donna Schumann interview. And Diagostino's insisting like, oh, I, I know it was somewhere in these notes. Come on, Gary. Like, she totally told you this. He's just like, I would have written it down if she did. Oh, (laughs) jeez. Oh, boy. (laughs) So anyway, now Gary Kesselman is going to be subpoenaed as a witness. (laughs) Yeah. The court's trying to clear this whole debacle up. And so Gary Kesselman says, on the stand, but without the jurors present at the moment, for some reason. It's weird. And he says, I have no recollection of having these statements imparted to me. Mm. Ugh. Anyway, uh, Donna Schumann's cross-examination continues, and she then says that Gary Kesselman told her prior to the grand jury that he would withhold her evidence to not tip his hand to the defense. Hmm. <laughs> so she's just digging that hole even deeper. Well, wow. Did Donna Schumann tell Gary Kesselman these statements and Gary Kesselman just forgot? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Nobody really knows. Yeah. Hannah, do you have anything you want to say about this? I mean, this is where in my notes, I think I just have,
0: like, what happened to his notes? Exactly. (laughs) Anyway, we do eventually, I guess, find out what happened to his notes.
2: We really don't, because, okay, a week later, Yagosino finds the note, I guess, but... It's just, it's it's the interview with Donna Schumann, but it's written in an outline form and doesn't have any specific quotations. Hmm. Hmm.
0: Huh.
2: So. Interesting.
0: Yeah, she found them, is that the stuff that she found in a folder that she thought contained yes. unimportant material? Yes. And I was like, she needed to apologize to Kesselman for... <laughs>
2: <laughs> Too late, Gary Kesselman's career ruined. Yeah. Because of the first witness. <laughs> Good start, everyone. Yeah. But we're gonna step away from that a bit to talk about John Landis's behavior during the trial. Oh my god. Are you ready okay. I I have some quotations written down about that. All right. John Landis possibly could go to jail for his crimes if found guilty. He's sitting there, and while a woman is testifying on the witness stand, she sees John Landis make a gun with his fingers like he was shooting her. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and Ugh. so the witness tells Tom Buds about this, who then gathers all the lawyers in front of the judge. Come on, guys, we gotta not do this. And Tom Buds says, my concern is it's been difficult enough getting these witnesses here, let alone having them put under what I feel is intimidation. Mm-hmm. At mm-hmm. the very least. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And John Landis' lawyer, James Neal, says, No, it didn't happen. And the judge says, It's not in contempt of court, because I didn't see it. But if, in fact, it occurred, that would be cause for grave consequences. Mm-hmm. Well, Dorsey Wingo's lawyer later admits, Yeah, I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh-uh. moving on from that, there's also Marcy Learoff, the casting director, when she testifies... Her way to leave uh, was between the council table and the defendant's chairs. And John Landis had his leg stretched out over the path to the exit. And he's sitting there looking down at a notepad. And so Marcy Lyroff comes up to his legs and says, excuse me. And he doesn't look up. And so then she just steps over his legs and leaves. So rude. Uh, <sighs> I mean, I would have kicked them.
1: I would have stepped stepped right on his legs, been like, you're on my way. You tripped
2: tripped theatrically. They're like, he tripped me. Yes. (laughs) Another charge for the
1: books.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, James Neal did not see this incident either, but he does learn of it later and he does yell at John Landis. (laughs) And so James Neal should get a lot of credit for whipping John Landis into shape. Yeah. It's the best thing he did for his client.
0: When I was when I was reading the book, I did actually really like him, the lawyer. I <laughs> I I know that you know he was defending Landis, and I can't stand Landis at all. But I feel like Neil. I don't know. And their relationship is an interesting one because at the end, don't they like doesn't is it Landis like writes him a little note?
2: <laughs> well, I've got it right here. Hannah. Okay. <laughs> John Landis writes him a note saying, Dear Jim, I've done many things I regret in my lifetime. Getting you to represent me is one I will never regret. Oh, God. <laughs> heart, heart, heart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So yes, they did eventually, both of them become good friends. Mm-hmm. But, oh well. Oh well. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff that happens during the prosecution's presentation of their case. Uh, They do all go to view the footage of the accident, and then there's an argument between the lawyers of what volume should be used (laughs) for viewing the footage, because they argue about every little thing, which I guess makes sense when you're trying to fight for your client or whatever. Yeah,
1: like the volume, really.
2: Yes. And they also go to visit the site where the accident happened. Mm. Oh. Although there's there's not really much point to visiting the site because it doesn't really exist anymore. I mean, it's just land. Diagostino, she wanted there to be a helicopter to show what it's like having a helicopter 20 feet above you. Uh, the judge wouldn't allow that.
1: <laughs> hey, I know it didn't work the first time, but let's... Let's do it one more time. Let's make it feel as real as the second time. You know, let's even have some bombs going off, okay? I really want the jury members to really feel what was going on.
2: I mean, that was kind of D'Agostino's strategy of I'm going to tell you every single detail... Of every single thing that happened, mm-hmm. I'm gonna teach you how to make a movie God.
0: Well that's doesn't she have like the gory photos up in her office uh, while she's <laughs> like preparing for everything? I mean she <laughs> yes. she's not shying away from it.
2: Yeah well. she wasn't allowed to present the photos of the aftermath of the accident, but she just had them on the wall behind her so that way when anyone would ever visit her. That's the first thing they see is just dead bodies. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. But back to the visit to the accident site. Diagostino was pretty upset that people were joking around, but they were there for two hours. So eventually, you know, you just, like, you get restless. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. But Hannah, what does Leah Diagostino do? I was going to say, I mean, (laughs) it's kind of
0: funny that she's saying that people are getting restless and not paying attention. There's... Like, a sheriff there with a horse, and she just randomly decides that she's gonna ride the sheriff's horse at the crime scene.
2: Well, well, the sheriff offers her, like, don't- you make it sound like he just jumped on the horse. (laughs) (laughs) Took it for a stroll. (laughs) The deputy sheriff was like, hey, do you want to ride my horse? And Leah D'Agostino was like, do I? Oh, jeez.
0: In my notes, I was like, I mean, I guess she saw her chance (laughs) and took it. Good for her. But also, no, now is not the time.
2: (laughs) Wow. I mean, if we were to talk about everything that Leah D'Agostino talked about in her case, we would be here for a million hours. Yeah. So that's why I'm cutting it short to... That's the end of the prosecution's case. On to the defense. Their first witness is John Landis. Uh, (laughs) And I personally believe he lied on the stand. Oh! I personally
0: believe
2: that. Well, Hannah, let's, let's go over some of the things he said. Hannah, you know,
1: no <laughs> one can lie on the stand, because then it would be contempt of court. Yeah. Are you saying that
0: John
2: Landis committed a crime, <laughs> It's
0: not like he has a history of almost being in contempt of court.
2: Oh, <laughs> uh, the judge didn't see it. The judge hasn't seen it. <laughs> All right. John Landis. His testimony. He testifies that he did not ask Marcy Learoff, the casting director, to hire the children, and that she did not say that the scene sounded dangerous. He said he told the parents about the helicopter and the special effects explosions. He says he does not recall ordering the helicopter to lower. Ugh. Hmm. Wow. And, Hannah, you're not going to like this. Yeah. And and James Neal didn't like it either. He did not want John Landis to testify that John Landis and Vic Morrow talked about. That
0: they, this is why I'm like, he's just such a liar. <laughs> He's like, he and Vic Morrow talked about him stumbling as he was carrying the children away. That that wasn't just like an accident like that. He just that the ditch just caught his foot wrong on on, when they were recording when the accident happened. No, he's trying to be like, yeah, we talked about adding that into the scene.
2: It's just to be like, yes, we rehearsed everything. We planned everything. (sighs) Well, Yep. (sighs) If Hannah can recover from that, we can... Yeah. (laughs) Alright, and the defense continues to focus on the delamination theory. Of course. And that's what caused the crash. But the judge reiterates that if there is recklessness in this case, the consequences need not be foreseen, other than that explosions took place and brought down the helicopter. It is enough that the defendant should have foreseen the possibility of some harm, Of the kind which might result from his act. But they're still arguing, hey, delamination has never happened before. They didn't know it would happen. Hmm. We have a metallurgy expert testifying who has this really well put together study that he did. Whatever. It's a lot of stuff, but we, we don't need to know how the helicopter crashed. But... It is, it's a convincing argument. Mm. Right. Alright, we're gonna get to Dorsey Wingo is going to take the stand. Mm. And the rest of the defense did not want Dorsey Wingo to testify, because <laughs> he could say some really bad things about all of them. Yeah, like the truth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Alright, now D'Arcino previously incorrectly used Dorsey Wingo's NTSP statements, but now that he was a witness she could use them. Yeah. Mm. Another reason why they probably didn't want him to take the stand. Yeah. Because, yeah, he says quite a few things. First of all, he says that there were planning meetings that included John Landis, Paul Stewart, and Dan Allingham when he had never testified testified about these meetings before. And mm-hmm. also nobody else testified about these meetings. So it's kind of weird that suddenly this is a thing. Yeah. Uh, He says that John Landis and Paul Stewart told him about the explosions in the planning meeting when in his NTSV interview, he said, No one ever pointed out an explosive, a bomb, a firebomb, as they were explaining them to me. And then he says something pretty bad. He says that he talked to Vic Morrow and warned him that if there was any change in the noise of the helicopter, that... He would know that something would go wrong, and that he always also needed to keep an eye on the helicopter, mm. even though he's trying to run holding two holding children two
0: tiny children away yeah. from explosions. explosions
2: yeah, anyway, Leah Diagostino is able to rip this apart, saying that he's blaming the victim mm-hmm. and-, and Wingo is not helping himself here because. Lee DiAgostino, in a cross examination, says, Where did you expect Mr. Amaro to run with these two children? And Dorsey Wingo says, Away from the helicopter. He had over five seconds between the time that the sound of the helicopter changed and it impacted.
0: Oh, over yeah. Five
2: seconds. <laughs>
0: That's that's a perfect amount of time to run in water. Yes, it's hard enough running <laughs> on land. And
1: I do believe he was running away from the helicopter.
2: I mean, Lee Derosino gets gets some points there. She gets some points taken away when she's telling Dorsey Wingo that he doesn't actually have PTSD. Oh, that made me so mad. When he does, <laughs> he was diagnosed with PTSD after the yeah. accident. <laughs> Love that. <sighs> well, you win some, you lose some, sometimes <laughs> at the same time <laughs> with the same witness. <laughs> so, that is the briefest summary of this trial. It's April 15th, 1987. It's over 100 days of testimony. Finished. Wow. Mm-hmm. Time for closing arguments. But Leah DiAgostino gives her eight hour closing <laughs> argument. My gosh. <laughs> I'm just like, I really hope I never have to be in, on a jury. Right.
0: How can you talk
2: for eight hours? How? Her, her main theme is that elements of the scene were inherently dangerous, and that should have been recognized. She points out that if John Lantis is telling the truth, that means 24 of her witnesses are lying. Mm-hmm. And she cites that the fundamental requirement for criminal negligence is that the defendant either knew or reasonably should have known that his act tended to endanger life. Defense closing arguments. They focus on nobody knew that the scene was dangerous, and it had been planned properly. Allegedly. Hmm. They blame James Camomile, who did testify in the trial. Uh, they blame him for not following the instructions which may or may not have been given to him. Mm-hmm. Unknown. Oh, yeah. well. Their closing arguments take 16 hours. It's Jeez. five people, then, so it makes sense. That's only like three hours per person. Mm-hmm. But since Diagostino only went eight hours, she gets eight more hours. Oh, yeah. For her closing argument. Well, <laughs> it's gotta be fair. And she uses them. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> and Leah Diagostino... Yes. I've I've said many times. She didn't have to prove how the helicopter crashed.
1: Mm-mm. But
2: the defense did have a very flashy presentation presenting their theory on how the helicopter crashed. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. she wanted to upstage them. Yo, and she, and she did. <laughs> she comes in to court with a bag, a grocery a bag. Grocery bag. There is a potato in this bag. There's also a straw in this bag. Hannah, yes. will you please describe what happens All during right. her closing argument?
0: <laughs> so she she takes this bag of groceries and she, like, sets it on the stand, I believe. Yeah, the witness stand. Yeah, and so she, she grabs the potato and she grabs the straw and then she, like... St- Dabs the straw into the potato, and then she says, If a little 90-pound woman can do this with a straw and a potato, think what a round piece of bamboo can do to a rotor blade. Hmm. (laughs) Okay. Same thing.
1: (laughs) Still don't really know what you're talking about. Can't really picture it still. (laughs) I'm pretty sure
2: the judge says, uh, Please disregard but, yeah. <laughs> but she she went for it. Yeah. <sighs> I... Wow. Yep. The jury begins at the deliberations. They do. They do. They really do. mm mm-hmm. And they come to a couple of conclusions. <laughs> they believed that the defendants did not know that what they were doing was dangerous. Mm-hmm. They also believed the parents had sufficient information about what was going on. And they believed that Donna Schumann was lying. Mm. Yep. And this leads to the not guilty verdict on all counts. Wow. On May 29th of 1987. That's so ridiculous. <laughs> what? What? And I gotta keep reiterating. This is the tiniest fraction of what happened during this trial. There's so many things I skipped over. Mm. So many... Antics. So many Leah D'Agostino talking to reporters and telling people. Wait, I have I have one written down. <laughs> How guilty she thinks everything is.
0: If I was a member of the jury, I'd take the defendants out and hang them.
2: <laughs> wow, <laughs> is
0: something she said to the press again. If that's the reason they replaced Kesselman with her, or like one of the potential reasons, like it did not pan out. She did not speak well to the press. Yeah, not a once. <laughs>
2: Yeah. She spoke to the press, though.
0: She spoke to them. <laughs> she spoke to them too much, I think.
2: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. It was a case. She comes off as very unlikable in the book. In both books. In every account of the trial.
1: So. Maybe she's just unlikable.
0: (laughs) It's hard to say, though, because, I mean, you have to think about the time period and the fact that she is a woman, and I'm sure that she's facing so much sexism and has to Mm. work so hard to even have gotten where she's gotten. I just think there's a lot of pride. I think she's just incredibly prideful and just can't let go of her pride. and, And through so much, like, there was so much where she wasn't even really conferring with Kesselman, even though he had spent so many more years with this case, so much more time with this case, and she just wasn't consulting him at all and was just doing things her own way. I think there were like plea deals that were happening and she was annoyed that like other people made them happen instead of her. So there's just like a lot of pride. Yeah. yeah. It's,
2: it's not good. And one of her, I mean, the Donna Schumann was really the only example I gave, but there are several times where she's presenting witnesses and and then they get caught in some sort of discrepancy and instead of just moving past it, she just doubles down It's like, no, I'm going to bring five more witnesses to say that they're telling the truth or whatever. Yeah, it's just...
0: yeah she brought <laughs> way more witnesses than Kesselman was planning on. She like doubled yes. the number.
2: Yes. Wow. There's the belief that she overtried the case mm. because she went on for many, many months. Jeez, I think I think she went out for six months four to six months mm. of just the prosecution Wow so it's yeah I will I will keep saying that this is this is just I mean I can't really say it's brief summary because it's this is quite a long episode of our podcast but there's mm-hmm. so much more there's been two books written about it that are both around 300 pages mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I recommend looking into it. You should always look into things for yourself. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. That's always what I hope to get across in this podcast is read critically. Mm-hmm. Look at situations critically. Don't just read a headline and think you know what's going on. Yeah.
1: I mean, our reviews are pretty great and pretty accurate, but, yeah,
2: <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, I mean, that is as... As brief as I could summarize it, and I could talk about this
1: all day. Do you know? Um, do you know what the results were of the civil trial?
2: Uh, it settled out of court. Oh, okay,
1: okay. So as is I mean, common. That was kind of a win, I guess.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, but then like the end of the one book was basically saying that the child labor laws ended up getting relaxed instead of like strengthened, Ugh. and what? and then it gave examples of other almost accidents with helicopters in in movies, like in TV and film and it was just like nobody learned anything. Wow. Nobody learned a single thing.
2: I do think it's changed since the 80s. I,
0: yes. I think but I don't know. But immediately after, <laughs> according
1: yeah. to the
2: one book, things were actually relaxed
1: Like it got worse before it got better.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean I don't think any children died afterwards so, you know, Fair. maybe it did get better, Hannah Maybe it did.
1: Yeah. I mean it's nice to think that maybe something good could come out of it like stricter labor yeah. laws or uh more accountability and to see it get worse directly afterwards is never a good a good feeling
2: yeah Anything you have in your notes that you want to add, Hannah? Do you want to talk about what happened to Gary Kesselman after the trial? Oh
0: my gosh. Okay, so this is where in my notes I wrote, Oh my gosh, Kesselman, I was on your side. Why were you meeting with a sex worker in your car, you idiot? <laughs> yes. Gary
2: Kesselman got caught in his car. Oh my gosh. He blames the stress of you know having his career ruined. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, I don't know what happened after that because yeah. the books came out soon afterwards, so it's like uh, <laughs> it was just like a footnote.
0: Yeah, <laughs> like just yeah, so you know, it
2: was like the last sentence. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, by by hey. the way, Gary Kesselman. <laughs> wow. Yep. <laughs> I'm glad we can end on a laugh. <laughs> at, at another man's expense. Uh, oh <laughs> yes. Boy. But yeah, okay.
1: Although, a final note on Frank Marshall. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Let's let's end on Frank Marshall.
2: Oh, we're, <laughs> well, I mean, we still have so much to talk about. But Frank Marshall, as I said, friends with Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. After the Twilight Zone movie accident, Steven Spielberg basically ended his friendship with John Landis. All right. But then he's just... Fine with Frank Marshall, which I suppose that they did not do the same things, but, you know, either support your friends or don't support your friends. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's... It it annoys me. Steven Spielberg did a very good job of keeping his name out of this story. I was gonna say... Maybe we
1: should remind people that this was produced by Steven Spielberg. He was like
0: one yes. of the other directors as well. Like, yes, for another part of the,
2: for a different segment. Yeah. So, did he know anything? He swears he did it. Yeah. Perhaps he didn't. Perhaps he didn't. But it doesn't it's, matter.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, it's it's easy to see how something like this could happen again and again. Yeah. Since no lessons were really learned, and nothing was really changed because of it.
2: But we can all take comfort in the fact that John Landis did have to go to trial. That's yes.
0: the only thing is that he had to go through such a lengthy trial. That's like the only thing that I'm I'm happy about with this is that he had to deal with that for so
2: long. Mm-hmm. Although he was still making movies during yeah. the entire five years of yeah. Well, Being accused of a crime. Yeah. Because who cares? If you can make a movie, make us a movie. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we may have come to the end of this episode. Mm. But before we end, does anybody have any recommendations?
0: Yay, yay, <laughs> I do. <laughs> this is a really incredibly, like, loosely... Related recommendation. It's just another nonfiction on another infuriating topic. Is is the connection that I made here. <laughs> It's Let the Record Show, A Political History of ACT UP New York, 1987 to 1993 by Sarah Shulman. Uh, so, like I said, this is another thing that's going to get you really frustrated with everything. Um, it's about the activist group ACT UP uh, during the AIDS crisis and everything that they did to, you know, try and make things better for people with AIDS and, and all of the different things that they had to go through. And it is kind of funny how everyone is like making fun of the cdc right now when we were like recording this with how like <laughs> their rules are just like making no sense anymore mm-hmm. <laughs> and <laughs> and i was already like prepped to be enraged by the Cdc from reading this book because of so many things that they just did during the AIDS crisis. There were a lot of actions that the group took against the CDC because, for one thing, um, the CDC wasn't even really recognizing any symptoms that women had from AIDS. Mm. So they wouldn't include that in their definition of AIDS. They wouldn't allow women to be included in any of the trials for any types of medicine, simply just because it's like, well, they could get pregnant. Don't want to deal with that. Uh, And it's like, (laughs) no, there are also issues with the medical trials and having placebo groups and how the people in ACT UP and and, and many of these uh, organizations and activists were like, it's it's really not fair to put these people in a placebo group when they're already, like, gonna die from this. Like, just... And I understand why... On one hand, it's like you – I guess you kind of need a placebo, but it's also like they had no medication at that time to fight AIDS. Mm-hmm. So you might as well get as much data as you can with actually using the medicine. Anyway, it's just – yeah, it's an infuriating read. It's a really interesting read. Um, Fauci is, of course, mentioned throughout it, though, of course, not in the most positive light because – I mean, he was one of the people who was like, I don't really see why women need to be included in – any of these trials <laughs> and wouldn't and wouldn't even really talk to any of the women activists or any of the people from Act Up and wouldn't even really hear them out. So Wow. So anyway, so <laughs> it's really I the way it's written is fantastic too because like I said, the author herself was a part of this movement, a part of this group, and she spent years interviewing everybody that she could. From this group. Mm-hmm. so you're getting all of these interviews and you're hearing their firsthand experiences, what they did, and you'll have like conflicting thoughts where there will be some activists who are really like adamant about the women and and changing the definition of the symptoms uh, to match what women are feeling. and then there are other people who are like, no, that's not the most important thing right now. we need to focus on this instead. So it's just really mm-hmm. it's really interesting. and if you <laughs> have the space right now to feel, angry about another topic check it
2: out So <laughs> well, you just described the whole book so i
0: i did, did it's so good no there's so much more to it than that hannah's riled up there's so much more you, to you it can't than that. Her. <laughs> this was secretly my favorite book of last year but i read it too late for our recording <laughs> oh <laughs> all
1: right hannah
0: yeah and
1: hey, christina because you're here too <laughs> I am here in spirit (laughs) and physically.
2: Do you want to do a little Vic Morrow career retrospective? Oh, sure. So we kind of mentioned at the beginning, it's really unfortunate that he's most known for his death. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I think he's actually a really great actor. Yeah. And so I've put together some recommendations of things you can watch. It's basically in the order of the least effort you need to put in to the most effort. Okay. Amazing. So if you just want to get a sense of who he was, he's in an episode of The Rifleman called The Angry Gun. He plays the villain of the week. Okay. It's great. I also love The Rifleman. Hannah knows that. Yeah. It's (laughs) one of Emma's favorites. It is. (laughs) So, So that's just real quick. Like, 25 minutes, there he is. Great. Okay. He's also in an episode of Bonanza called The Avenger. Okay. A few things about this episode. It was a backdoor pilot for a TV series that would have starred Vic Morrow, Mm. which, unfortunately, Hannah, we did not get a Western about Vic Morrow just Uh. going around the West Doing vigilante justice. Man. Wow. But also this episode is in the public domain because there's like 30 episodes of Bonanza that are just in the public domain for some reason. Okay. (laughs) They like didn't renew the copyright on 30 out of the 600 episodes. (laughs) Weird. So you can very easily find that. There's also the first thing that he was in is a movie called Blackboard Jungle. Which was surprisingly really good. I watched it. I was so prepared for this 1950s movie about rock and roll corrupting our youth. Mm -hmm. But it was not that. It was more like teachers don't have the resources that they need to... What teach students and they don't have the yeah. support they need and so they just kind of give up and then the students just kind of get even more out of hand and it's this terrible cycle
1: Wow, <laughs> I feel like that might be depressing for
0: Hannah to watch yeah. <laughs> a little too timely <laughs> Yeah
2: <laughs> So many decades later Well Vic Morrow is basically the main antagonist of that movie and he's great <laughs> He plays a teenager, and he's like definitely in his twenties. Never looked young. (laughs) It's okay. (laughs) Wow. Oh my gosh. All right. I briefly mentioned that he tried to become a director. He directed a movie called A Man Called Sledge, and Mm. I watched this movie because it's a western. Because Mm. of okay, Hannah, this movie has everything going for it. Okay. Directed by Vic Morrow. It's mm-hmm. a western. Mm-hmm. It stars James Garner and Dennis Weaver. Okay. If anyone mm. could like this movie, it's me. Yeah. It's not great. Aww. Wow. The story is that he made the movie and then it was taken from him and edited to shreds. Ugh. And so I don't know if it would have been a good movie if he had Final Cut on it. But it probably would have been a better movie. That's frustrating. I did really enjoy like the middle forty minutes of the movie, Mm. but then the last thirty minutes were really bad. Okay. Yeah, but I still kind of liked it. Like I would rewatch it. I think the movie does look nice and the acting's good, but the overall story is not. Okay. Yeah. And finally, we got to talk about my favorite show, which our Hannah already talked about. Yeah. Combat. That's kind of how I became more obsessed with this story than I already had.
1: Mm -hmm. Because as I
2: said, I read the Wikipedia article, had the names in in the back of my head for years, whatever, I can move on with my life. And then one night I can't sleep, and Mm -hmm. I decide to watch TV, because that's always a good idea. Mm -hmm. It's Mm 2am, and I turn it on, and there's a show called Combat on, which I had never heard of, and I'm watching it, and I'm like... This is so good,, mm. and I watched the whole thing, and I loved it. I loved all of it. I didn't love all of it. there's some bad episodes, of course, <laughs> overall, it's very good. It's a very consistently good show, and so i've that's good. I recommend the show highly. I think the first episode of the show is a pretty good representation of the show, so if you like it, you should continue watching it. There's a lot of things I like about the first episode. The ending's a little weird, but that's okay. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) The show gets better. If you just want to watch individual episodes, you don't really want to watch the whole show, but maybe you want to check it out. Uh, The two-part episodes are really good. The Long Way Home Mm. is the first episode I ever saw, and it's probably my favorite episode. I've watched it a lot. And then the two-part episode, What Are the Bugles Blowing For?, is also really good. Hannah, you never saw that one. Okay. We should watch it. (laughs) (laughs) And then the episode... Pills are for heroes. Vic Morrow directed this two-part episode, so he's not in it very much, but he directed it. And so I don't really want to recommend it because it's the best episode of the series, so I don't want you to watch that and be like, let me watch the whole series now, and then it's not as good as that one episode. Well, But it's so good. It's really good. I'd love to review it. If anyone's out there reviewing it. (laughs) (laughs) In a podcast, if anyone's starting a combat podcast, call me. Invite Emma.
1: Oh my gosh!
2: So that's it. We've gone on long enough. I just I didn't want to end entirely on all the sadness. I wanted to right. mm-hmm. give you all something to check out. Yeah, that won't make you angry like Hannah's recommendation, <laughs> <laughs> More like this entire podcast. yeah. yeah. But that is. All I have to say, other than I guess Hannah, will you tell us what we're reading next time?
0: Yeah, so we're kind of coming full circle uh, with this podcast, and we are attempting to read our favorite books again. Speaking for myself, I kind of failed spectacularly at this the last time. (laughs) At least you read your book. (laughs) That we did this. Um, So let's see if we can do better this time. I have a bunch of different types of books uh, that are my favorite, but I decided to go with a pretty recent favorite book. It's called The Darkness Outside Us by Elliot Schreffer. It's about these two young men from rival countries who are sent on a rescue mission to this distant moon and so the the sister of one of the guys was on this expedition to Titan uh, and she hasn't been heard from in years but then her distress signal was tripped so they're going on this rescue mission immediately things are like a little iffy because he wakes up and he doesn't really remember even getting on the ship like he knew he was going to be on this mission so we just kind of go from there I am taking a bit of a chance with this because it is YA and I know I at least for Emma. That's possibly her least favorite <laughs> age range, I guess, or, uh, when it comes to books. Or at least she hated the YA books uh, from when we were growing up, which is pretty fair. Uh, <laughs> we grew up in the worst age of YA. We grew up in both the worst, but then
2: also like when it was booming. The most iconic age, which is yeah. why it was so bad.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: Twilight. Trash became popular, and so people just kept writing trash.
0: No, I am curious because I personally think that this book reads like... It reads like YA, but I think it does read like slightly more mature. Um, So I'm just curious to see what you all end Mm. up thinking about it. Okay. Yeah. Can't Can't wait. wait. Alrighty then. Well, thank you for joining in on this not at all lighthearted episode. (laughs) Check out our Instagram and Twitter uh, or feel free to email uh, your thoughts and opinions to us. We would love to hear from you. All of our contact information can be found in the show notes. Thank you to all our listeners out there for continuing to listen. And until next time, don't forget to treat yourself.